We are in, up to week two in our series that we've called uh, Jesus the King We Need, where we're looking at some of those real key high-water marks in the Old Testament, these prophecies about Jesus, the coming Messiah, the coming King. And, and, and there's some descriptions, some beautiful imagery of what he is going to be like and what he is going to do when he comes. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into the book of Micah this morning. So if you have your Bible... Or you can go ahead and turn to that or scroll uh, on your device to Micah chapter 5. We'll be in Micah chapter 5. Um, let me just give you a little bit of a, a background before we dive in this morning. Uh, last week we were in Zechariah. Zechariah, I don't know if I said this last week, he lived about 450 years before Jesus was born. Micah lived 300 years before that, 750 B.C. That's when he lived and prophesied. So let me give you a little bit of a historical background. In the time that Micah was speaking these words to the original audience, um, he was in and around Jerusalem, uh, in and around the people of God who are living there. But the people of God, God's people, the country was under attack. The superpower that was kind of invading and attacking them in the day was, a, was an empire called Assyria. And um, they had already um, invaded huge chunks of territory across the land. Um, they eventually made it all the way to the northern half of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they took that over and destroyed its capital city. Uh, they had captured most of the country. In fact, their armies made it all the way to the very walls and gates of Jerusalem itself. And they threatened, in the days of King Hezekiah, to actually invade Jerusalem and take all of its people uh, captive and make them slaves. Micah doesn't tell us in his prophecy whether or not Jerusalem is going to make it. He doesn't tell us whether Jerusalem and its people are going to survive because his prophecy is actually given before we know the outcome. What he does tell us, and it's really important for us to understand even all these years later, is that number one, God is in control of history. He is the one that is driving these armies and these empires and all the politics of the day. He is in total control. He raises up leaders and armies and he moves them around for his good purposes. So that's the first thing that Micah tells us. The second thing that he tells us is that really all through Micah is that the failure of God's people the failure of God's people, and they had failed because it says that, that the Assyrians, the reason they were there was God was punishing them. He was judging them. But the failure of God's people was ultimately a result of the failure of their leaders. The failure of God's people was a result of the failure of their leaders. And from Micah's prophecy, we hear all about leaders who have rejected God. They've rejected God's word so they could get on with their own greedy, oppressive lifestyles, and agendas. Listen to what it says about the leaders of God's people. These are the, the kings, the prophets, the priests. They're all implicated in this. Here's what Micah says, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. 
You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and you break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Now, let me put your mind at ease. They weren't actually cannibals. This is figurative language. Um, it's symbolic to show just how much the leaders were abusing their power, abusing their position, and abusing the people. Uh, one, some of the examples that Micah gives, he talks about the prophets who would give people prophecy, tell them their future, like, you know, like a fortune teller, based on how much money they were able to pay. So if you had money and you could put it in the coffer, then they would give you a favorable fortune, a favorable prophecy. If you didn't have money, well, then that you're out of luck. You're going to get a bad a fortune, a bad prophecy. And the judges and the political leaders of the day were no better. If you had money then you, and you could take your case to court, you would most likely win. Justice went to the highest bidder. All this corruption started at the top and it flowed down to the people until everybody was implicated. Everybody was infected. So th then finally, the third thing that Micah tells us in his prophecy is that it wasn't just the leaders who were the problem. It, it may have started with them, but by the time Micah spoke, just about everyone was in rebellion against God. There were no innocent victims. Everybody was complicit. And now God was coming down to execute judgment on his own people. And not just on his people, but on all uh, the nations. But as in so many of the prophets in the Old Testament, God's judgment on sinful, rebellious people is not the last word. There's always this rich tapestry of judgment kind of interwoven with prophecies of hope and salvation. And the main passage that we're going to look at this morning in Micah chapter 5 is one of those moments, one of those notes of hope in the book of Micah. It's set against the backdrop of what's going on and all the judgment that's happening and the evading Assyrians and all of this. But right in the midst of that hopeless, dire situation, God comes in and he gives his prophet Micah a word of hope. Not like this, the prophets who were, you know, giving people hope that, that didn't really need it and, and, and it wasn't coming from God. They didn't have to pay for it. This was free of charge. He says, I am going to bring a king. I'm going to bring a king, and he's going to do the opposite of what all the leaders that you're used to seeing have been doing. He is going to be righteous. He's going to be just. Instead of feasting on the people, chewing them up, the king will feed the people like a shepherd feeds sheep. He will shepherd them. He will shepherd you from the moment that you first join the family of God until the day you meet him face to face. He is your shepherd in every moment from now until forever. So that's where we're going this morning. That's the whole point of this passage I'm about to read. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. Okay? I'm reading from the CSB. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief, a siege is set against us. They're striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, 
from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she is, who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria, and when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Join me as I pray. Lord, thank you for your unchanging word. Even when it's a word of prophecy that was delivered thousands of years ago into a completely different historical context and situation, full of imagery and detail that we may not understand, but Lord, help us to hear your word speaking, your truth your unchanging nature, just leaping off the pages and through these words today. Help me to speak clearly and and words full of of life and hope and grace, Lord. And and would you come through your spirit and do your work in us as as we listen, as we seek to understand, as we seek to obey, as we seek to place all of our hope and our and our joy in you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so the first thing that Micah does in this prophecy in chapter 5 about the coming shepherd king is he reminds the people in verse 1 just how bad their situation really is. Just what a mess they're in. Look at verse 1. God's people are under attack, again, by the Assyrian army. And when they would invade a city, what they would do, their tactic, and it was common back in ancient times, was to build a siege ramp to build a siege ramp outside the city wall. See, the city had a a fortress, a wall around it, and they would come and they would get dirt and and rubble and construction material and build this ramp until eventually they would um, get the, you know, to be able to get the armies and throw things into the city. But they also, part of the siege was they would cut off the supply routes in and out of the city until eventually the people would have no more provision. They They would run out of food, they would run out of water, Uh, They would run out of medical help um, until eventually they would just have to surrender and and people would come out and plead for their their lives. That was a very common tactic of warfare back in the day, but pretty brutal. It was a very long, slow, drawn-out process. And Micah is convinced that God is the one who has directed this siege to happen, to judge his people for their idolatry, for their rebellion against him. But You see, it's more than a punishment. It's also a picture. The siege warfare, it's a picture of what it's like to be cut off from life and health and joy by sin. It's a picture. Last week I said that the biggest enemy that you will face are not the Assyrians or whoever the Assyrians are in your life outside of you. It's not another person. The biggest enemy that you will ever face is what's going on inside of your own heart. Those problems are big, and and, and we can't ignore them, the ones outside of us. But the biggest problems we face, the biggest enemy I have, is that my heart wants to go my own way. I I want to pad my my own uh, lifestyle and my own comfort. My biggest enemy is me, and and your biggest enemy is, is you. 
and, and the longer you wait to come to God, to return to God in repentance and, and ask for his mercy and ask for his forgiveness, the more that your sin will grow hidden and visible and it will choke the life out of you. There's a reason that Jesus himself, he compares sin and sin-wrecked people uh, to, uh, to a picture of weeds and, and thorns that start out invisible and tiny and then eventually sprout up until they become visible and they, by the time that they're visible, they are literally choking the life out of you. And with outside help to get in under the surface, into your heart, and, and, and discern and just root out the weeds and the sin, without someone coming in from the outside to help us, we don't have any hope at all. Sin is siege warfare in your heart and in my heart. It's siege warfare in this community and in the world. And if we're not aware of it, it will destroy us. Now, in this place of desperation, when we're cut off from comfort and no help is coming, that's when the good news of the gospel breaks in and actually is good news. When the consequences of whatever it is that you have done or thought or said catch up with you, that's when the forgiveness of the gospel is good news. When your secret goes out in the open, that's when the gospel is good news. When the consequences of your sin mean that people in your life walk away, that's when the gospel is good news. You don't crave to be rescued. You don't delight in the rescue until you know how much you need to be rescued. Jesus, the king we need, is most desirable <clears throat> when we're most aware of the devastation that our sin has left in us and around us. That's the picture of verse 1 a picture of our desperate need for rescue. Excuse me. Now let's look at verses 2 and 3. Here comes the king, the rescuer. You might recognize verse 2 because the first part of it is quoted in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 2, in the story of the wise men. The wise men, they come traveling to Jerusalem and they go straight to the palace and they ask, where is the Messiah? The king that's promised by the prophets. Where is he going to be born? And they open up the, the Old Testament. And they open up to the book of Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. And here's the answer they come back with. This king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men, they go look for him. And they find him. Um, so here's where we are. Bethlehem is probably the most famous small town in the history of the, the world. People sing about this little town, probably population less than a thousand, in multiple languages all over the world and have for hundreds and hundreds of years because this is the place that God chose that his king would be born. At Christmas time, we sing about Bethlehem. We have, you know, we, you know, have churches put on these living nativity road to, to Bethlehem all over the place. And that small town among the clans of Judah was significant, not, not just because it was going to be the birthplace of the king, but it had already been the birthplace of another king previously, a king called David. Hundreds of years before Micah was ministering, David, Israel's most famous king, was born in Bethlehem. And so that's going to bring out, I think, two truths to us. The first one is that Jesus is the king who all the previous kings point forward 
to all the other rulers and kings of Israel point forward to Jesus the king. When God made his covenant with his people, when he makes his covenant specifically with David, and you can read about this in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes some pretty amazing promises. Uh, Let me read just a few of them. I don't have it on the screen, so just, just listen to some of the promises God made to King David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture where he was tending the flock, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I will make a great name for you. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. Do you see the pattern? See, David is the pattern of the Messiah King who will come after him. David was a shepherd before he was a king, an actual shepherd. Jesus, we don't, never actually tended sheep as far as we know, but he is a spiritual shepherd for his people. Jesus is clearly the promised descendant of the one who will, the one who will sit on David's throne forever, ruling not as the son of David, but as the son of who? The son of God. All the quirks and sins of Israel's kings only increase the people's longing for a king who will come and be sent straight from God, right to David's hometown, the town of shepherds. The second significant truth here is that this king is going to come on the way, he's going to, sorry, he's going to come on the scene in such a way that only God could pull it off. Only God could pull this off. Let me, let me point out one historical detail about Micah here. He, he talks about Bethlehem as being the birthplace of the king. When Micah was living, when he delivered this prophecy, see, Bethlehem, even though it was only 10 miles outside of the walls of Jerusalem, Bethlehem was already under enemy control. The Assyrians had already taken it over. It was not home ground any longer. The promise here is that the rescuer that God is going to send, the true king, he's going to come from outside the camp. He's going to come from behind enemy lines. And who can pull that off except the God of the universe, the Lord of armies? God is going to act unilaterally to make this happen. There is nothing that the Israelite people, God's people, can look back and say, yeah, we did that. We're the ones that brought Jesus onto the scene. No, no, no. This is God acting unilaterally to save his people and to save the nations Listen, church, Jesus is coming to earth. He was born in Bethlehem as a a descendant of King David to rescue you and me from the devastation and siege of sin in our hearts. And that was and is God's plan A. There was no plan B. He says, uh, he didn't say, uh, you know, well, I'll send him a hero. And if he doesn't work out, I'll send him another one. No, there was only one. All the other kings and prophets that came before this one were flawed. And most of them knew it. They knew they weren't the one. When Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist, who was the last of the prophets, he looks at him and says, I'm, it's not me, it's him. Not me. He is the one who was to come. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Only God could do this. Look, look at verse 2 again. Where, where did Jesus come from? It says, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. The word antiquity that we see here is, we find it in other parts of the Old Testament. One example is Psalm 74, verse 12, where the writer says this. He says, God is my king from ancient times. From ancient times. 
There's only one being who existed in ancient times, and that is God. This king who is coming from ancient times is, in fact, God himself coming onto the scene, the one who existed before anything existed. He is coming. He is king. And the meaning here, the meaning here is that the one who's coming humbly to be born, to be our shepherd king in a manger in Bethlehem is God himself. He is the one who comes to save you and me from our desperate condition. And that was God's plan from the beginning. So what does it mean? It means if we can look around us, you can look inside of you, you can look around you, and you can think about the struggles. You can think about other people who are besieged by sin and besieged by society's sin. And we can know that God will keep his word. Because it's not up to you, it's not up to them, it's not up to anybody. It's only up to God to bring rescue. He announces plan A, he executes plan A, he brings plan A to completion. You know, for these Israelites, it says there in verse 3, things were going to get a lot worse before they got better. He, he, he predicts that they're going to be exiled, they're going to be expelled from the land, and then they will, at some point later, return. He compares it to a woman in labor. There's a painful time before the joy. Everything that happens is on God's timeline, and his timeline is always the most loving, always the most merciful, always the wisest. So you can trust him when answers and rescue don't show up straight away. You, you can pray and ask God to meet whatever needs you have, and you can ask other people to pray for you, whatever it takes to help you remember that you are in Christ, that God is for you. Your transformed life is part of his plan A. Well, let's, let's move a bit further now to verse 4. We get the job description here of this king. It says, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. See, the verb stand here is really important. Kings back in the day and people in authority were not often pictured as standing. If you saw an image of them, they would often be seated. Because people who stand are the ones without the high-paying jobs. They're the ones without posh positions. Think about the last time you've been to a wedding, like a wedding reception. Who are the people, if there's not dancing going on, who are the people standing at a wedding reception. The people serving you, the people serving the tables, maybe the photographer. The guests of honor are seated at the table. But here we see Jesus, the shepherd king, and he is standing to shepherd them, to serve them in the strength of the Lord. Not weakly, but in the strength of the Lord. What does it say about God who sends a shepherd and not a soldier? Again, I think it says that your biggest enemy, my biggest enemy, is what's going on inside. It's not the people that are attacking from the outside. You know, in Israel's day, their heart, people's hearts, their society was totally corrupt. They were bent away from God, bent away from worship, bent, bent towards self, bent towards instant pleasure, a lot like we are. Which is why, right at the right time, Christ, your shepherd king, he died for the ungodly. He is the good shepherd that lays his life down for the sheep. Remember I said that one of Micah's themes he was hammering in his speeches is just how corrupt the leaders were and how the corruption flowed down from the leaders to the people. With Jesus, that effect is completely reversed. Completely reversed. All the people, it says, will live securely under his protection, 
under his influence. He will lead them to good grass. He will lead them to good water. Before, we saw the, the leaders feeding on the people. Here we see the leader, Jesus, feeding the people. That's true leadership. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher from the 19th century, uh, reflects on what it means <coughs> that Jesus is the shepherd king. In particular, the one who enjoys the favor of this king, who has access to this king. The answer makes him look like a king uh, like none other who has ever lived. Here's, here's Spurgeon. He says, lambs, little baby lambs, they don't have the value of mature sheep, and yet they're the most thought of under the great shepherd. They might fetch the lowest price at the market, but they have the greatest portion of his heart. Who gets Jesus' special attention? The youngest, the weakest, the poor. Kings, you see, usually look to the interests of the great and the powerful and the rich. But in the kingdom of your shepherd, our great shepherd, he cares most for the poor. Your king, the king you need, is the one who leaves the 99 healthy sheep and, and, and goes after the one, the one who's in danger. That's how you and I ended up in the flock to begin with. He personally sought after you. When you were weak, when you were vulnerable, when you were guilty, when you were ashamed, he found you. And from that moment and every moment that follows, he is your shepherd that leads you not with an iron fist, but a gentle hand. Here's the prophet Isaiah who talks about this same shepherd king in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. See, that's the king that you need. It's the king that I need. Not one who runs with the bulls out ahead of the pack, but one who sticks with the stragglers, the young, the weak, the ones like us who need to be carried. The last thing I, I want to point out from Micah's portrait of the shepherd king comes to us. He comes to us in our weakness and desperation is uh, in the end of verse 4 and verses 5 and 6. The greatness of the shepherd king, it says, will extend to the ends of the earth. That's his empire. The Assyrians were kind of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. Their territory extended from like modern-day Egypt all the way uh, to parts of Persia and even over to India. It was a huge chunk of the known world at the time. But, but this king, this shepherd king, who's, who's gentle, not like the brutal Assyrians, he's gentle. And his kingdom is going to extend across the entire map. He proclaims peace to his people because he literally owns everything. All the enemies have been subjugated and destroyed. They have nowhere to hide because everywhere and everybody belongs to him. But again, the context, when, when Micah is speaking these words, God's people are experiencing the attack uh, of the Assyrian army. They're abandoned, they feel, as it says in verse 3. But one day, the tables will be turned, and people will be rescued from Assyria. So how is Jesus, the shepherd, going to accomplish this? He's going to defeat his enemies, and he's going to expand his territory to the ends of the earth. But look at verse 5. He says, the shepherd king is going to produce, what? Shepherds, plural, underneath him to do the work of the shepherd king. 
the under-shepherds will be like the chief shepherd. They will bind up the brokenhearted. They will carry the weak. They will find the lost. They will bring them to rich food and to living water. And they'll do it all at great cost to themselves. There's no comfort that they won't give up. There's no risk they won't be willing to take so that more and more sheep who do not have a shepherd will one day come under the grace and love and mercy and protection of the shepherd king. That's the work of these under-shepherds that they undertake, and it goes on and on and on until the day when the shepherd king is known to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 6. It says, They will shepherd the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod. Nimrod was beyond Assyria. It was everything that was outside of Assyria's control. That's everywhere. It says, They will, the under-shepherds, will shepherd the land. God's people will dwell and live and worship in those places as well. These currently, in Micah's day, these were not friendly places for God's people. This is like, you know, North Korea in that day. Like, not the place where you think of worship happening, and yet here in this prophecy, it's happening. You know, you don't go to those places like Nimrod if you want to have a happy, comfortable life. You don't go there. But the king, he sends his shepherds there, his missionaries with, says with a sword. And this sword here is not, again, just like we didn't have actual cannibalism. He's not picturing actual military conquest here. He's, he's talking about the sword of his spirit, the word of God, the gospel. That's what this picture is. That's what the shepherd king does. He doesn't come to rescue you and take you to your little safe space so that you can feather your nest from now on until the day that you die. He draws you in and then he sends you out to shepherd others. He opens your eyes to see his mercy and favor for you so that you can go out and extend that and proclaim that to others. Maybe he'll send you to the people in your own household, in your family. Maybe he'll send you to your workplace or your school, to others who need to be introduced and know the love and mercy of the shepherd king. See, being like Christ, the shepherd, always involves going to sheep who need shepherd. I wonder who are those people in your life? And what's it going to take to, to bring them into the family? I mean, of course it takes a miracle of the Spirit. But friends, God is calling some of you to be that miracle. To be available, to open your mouth, to open your wallet, to take that risk. This week, uh, um, I had to fill out an online survey. It was for Acts 29, the church planning network that they're part of. And we have to do this every year. The elders have to do this every year. I didn't want to do it because I know one of the questions they ask. I mean, they ask, are you, you know, do you recommit to, you know, be in Acts 29 to, um, you know, contribute to teach the distinctives, the doctrines? Um, yes, 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 that's all fine. But then they ask, um, how many people in the past year through your church um, came uh, to know Jesus for the first time. How many people were baptized? And I, I had to be, to be honest, and, and we haven't. Like, I, I can't answer that honestly and, and not say, well, we haven't seen that yet at City Light South. Now, I, I'm hopeful that we will see that. I know that we will because I, 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 it's, it's, it's not about me. It's about the Lord and His good, his good purposes. 
But man, it breaks my heart. And I, and I just, I want to see that. I want to see that for next year. I don't want to write zero on that form next year. Because that's what he's done. He calls us to be his under shepherds. He calls us to places like Christie's Beach where there are hundreds and hundreds of people that have known nothing about Jesus. Nothing about the shepherds. Have never experienced mercy from anywhere, much less mercy from Jesus himself. He calls us to go and plant churches and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let me summarize again what Micah has been saying. That Jesus is the shepherd king who we need, who the world needs. The prophet Micah, he predicted his coming, predicted that he'd be born in Bethlehem, predicted his shepherd-like ministry hundreds of years before it actually happened. And he said, number one, you know, Jesus, our king, is most desirable when we're most aware of how bad it really is in ourselves and out there. Number two, Jesus, our king, has always been God's plan A, so we wait for him. Number three, Jesus came to lead us back to God and feed us. And then number four, Jesus, our king, raises up men and women, ordinary men and women, to lead others from every place on earth to his rest, to his joy. I, I don't know about you, but I want to know this shepherd king. I want to be used of this king. And I hope you do too. I, I mentioned before, uh, through our various channels, um, some opportunities we have to do shepherding work actual shepherding work here in our local community. Um, this week, I got to meet with a couple of, of men, uh, one of the, the, the well-being coordinator from this school. Um, they are looking to employ a new pastoral care worker for Christie's Beach after the, the Simon who's been here is, is moving on after six years. They absolutely love the ministry that he has done and, and are just like, like, we don't even want a job description. We just want this. We want a carbon copy of this guy. We want somebody to come and pastorally care for our families. Do you know where the word pastoral care comes from? It comes from the pasture. It's shepherding work. And, and, and here we have opportunity and people saying, please come and do that here. So if you, if you are interested in or you know somebody, please come and, and talk to me. Um, I'd love to, to connect you. Um, we have the opportunity to do similar work and support similar work in other schools, part of an inner church council that supports 11 schools in, in this area. To just be a picture of the shepherd king, of his love and his, and his tender care for those who are weak and vulnerable. We have an opportunity to lead them respectfully to uh, the king. And that's our, that's our mission. Let me close with this. I think the biggest obstacle to mission in our city and in the world is not opposition from enemies. It's, you know, the Assyrian armies are always there with their insults and their lawsuits. But don't, don't pay attention to them. They're not the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle is when we, as followers of Jesus, the shepherd, when we don't really internalize and grasp the gospel that we came, claim to believe. We, we don't know how hopeless our situation was before Jesus. We treat him as one thing or one option, one hobby among many. Church is just a thing. It's just, it's just a hobby. But friends, Jesus is not just a thing, not just a hobby. He's the king of everything. He's the source of everything. And if he's saved you, then he's commissioned you to go and find other sheep who are lost, to lead them home, to carry their burdens. And you're not alone. We, we do this together. So let's do it for his glory and for the joy of this people, this community, and God's world. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are our shepherd. You are our shepherd, and 
in you, we lack nothing. We lack no good thing. You lead us to green pastures. You lead us to gentle waters. And when we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, when life is hard and difficult and devastating, you are there with us. We don't fear evil because we know that you are there and that you are stronger than any opposition that we can face. Jesus, thank you for that you are the bread of life. Thank you that you are living water. Thank you that you not only lead us to those things, you are those things. And so, Lord, as we come to the table again and once again feed on you, Lord, may we see you and worship you as the one who feeds our souls everything that we need. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened and emboldened once again as your people to go and be shepherds of the sheep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.